Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside, told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. From WABE in Atlanta, this is Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up on today's program, we follow the money as to how much is pouring into Georgia's elections. Who's giving the most to whom and from where? We'll break down the latest campaign finance reports and more with campaign strategist Fred Hicks. Also, this was a 100-unit senior and disabled person complex that was owned by the uh, East Point Housing Authority. Nearly 20 years after it closed, a former public housing high-rise in East Point is being renovated to meet what else affordable housing needs. All those conversations coming up, but first we'll begin with this. Republican U.S. Senate candidate Herschel Walker is making campaign appearances, but journalists are not allowed to attend. When the Hall County GOP held a barbecue this past Saturday in a public park where Walker and other candidates spoke, a WAB reporter was asked to hit the road to leave. On Twitter, the Hall County GOP made it clear that this was not their decision, but they'd been asked by the Walker campaign to exclude media, news people. Well, let's find out more and get an update on all of this and what else is happening in Georgia politics. Let's bring in WABE politics reporter Raul Bali. Welcome. Hello, Rose. WABE wasn't invited to the barbecue. Apparently, apparently not. Uh, you know, um, you know, just to kind of take, take the, your take the audience kind of behind the curtains. It's, it's Friday night and you know, what What do all great political reporters do on a Friday night? They go surfing the Internet. And I was just looking for events to go to during the weekend because I'm talking to voters mm-hmm. and checking out candidates. Landed on the Hall County GOP Facebook page and they were having, uh, you know, an Independence Day picnic that was and it's written clear as day at the top, open to everyone. Mm-hmm. And so, hey, let me let me head up there. So, you know, I made the drive over to Gainesville, uh, had gotten there. uh introduced myself when I got there. I had my badge on, uh, my cool multicolored WABE microphone, uh, was with me. I had even done an interview already. So I was there for like 40 minutes and, mm-hmm. and then I had Hall County GOP official come up to me and say, I'm going to ask you to leave because it was a private event and that the speakers were told that there'd be no press. And, and so that's what ended up happening. I, I didn't make a scene. I, I was like, you know, you know, what should I do? And you know, I, I just, you know, I made the decision to, to step away. And you're right, it was in a, in a public park. And, you know, the other the other interesting things here, first of all, you know, I covered an event with Herschel Walker just three weeks ago. Mm-hmm. You know, I got to cover his speech. We got to talk to him, ask him questions. So it's not like, you know, I don't know what has changed that led to this. And then the other thing, the whole event was streamed on Facebook. You know, so it was a private event, but it was it was shared all over social media. So it was just I don't know. I, I don't know what better word to use other than it was just a weird situation of, of why this decision was made. So this was a Hall County official. You said an elected official or was it someone with his campaign that asked you to take off? The gentleman identified himself as with the Hall County GOP. Huh. Now is it? Yeah, I mean. I made my case. I I, I said, look, sir, it, it was open for everyone. You know, it was written right here on the flyer. And uh, they again asked me to leave. So, um, you know, I left. Well, good. Right? We, wouldn't want you to cause a, we wouldn't want you to cause a scene with your multicolored WABE mic flag up there. <laughs> <laughs> I might have, but that's just me. Um, let's talk about Herschel Walker's campaign for a moment, Raul, because there has been some reports that there's been some inner turmoil within the campaign in terms of, and these, again, these are reports of folks saying that perhaps his campaign felt blindsided about uh, the recent reports and, and confirmations of, of kids um, that he said he'd 
previously maybe didn't have. I don't know the whole story there, but that's what's being reported. Also reports of just folks not feeling like they know everything. What are you hearing? Are you hearing anything about is this campaign in turmoil here? I'm not seeing it. And that, and, and I'm basing that on when I'm there and I see them. Look, a, after campaigns, so many times we hear about either the stress mm-hmm. or the pressure or there was infighting. We sometimes hear about that afterwards. Um, I don't have that sourcing. When I see them, they seem to be happy, joyful. But they're also pushing back against that narrative. You've seen, uh, I saw the, a tweet of, hey, they were all having lunch together. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then you had the announcement today, which was newsworthy, that they're bulking up their staff. Now, you're seeing multiple organizations. You saw the you know Governor Kemp's campaign mm-hmm. bulk up. You're, you're seeing Democratic candidates bulk up their staff. And, and that's what you got an announcement today, that Herschel Walker's campaign is bulking up their staff with a number of media professionals and consultants and and and, and operatives so um and not unusual know, because we're heading into some crucial months before obviously that big date in november so nothing maybe to read into it because this is common that candidates will need to bring in some some troops some reinforcement here absolutely because and we're seeing that like i said governor kemp's campaign is bulking up we saw an announcement like that last week and in in similar um, you know, you're seeing Democratic campaigns. And, and, and of course, Herschel Walker's campaign has the money to bulk up like this. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, you're absolutely right. Nothing out of the ordinary. But that, that was what was newsworthy today when it when it comes to that. Again, we could and it's happened so many times where after a campaign happens, you hear the stories of all the issues that happened behind the campaign. I've not had that reporting and I've not had that sourcing. Rahul, are we going to see any debates between any of these folks? Particularly, obviously, the gubernatorial race, and obviously with the Senate race. Yes. Uh, well, let's start on the on the governor's race. Mm-hmm. Uh, Stacey Abrams and Brian Kemp have accepted invitations to. I'm, I wish I could remember. I want to say three debates, but maybe two debates. Mm-hmm. The Libertarian also going to be involved in the Atlanta Press Club debate. So those debates are set. Um, on the Republican side, uh, Senator Raphael Warnock has accepted invitations to three debates. I believe the Libertarians have accepted one, but we've not heard from Herschel Walker about the number of debate invitations he's going to accept. He didn't debate at all previously. He did not. Right. He did not. And and I asked him about it when I was, was on the campaign trail. Mm-hmm. I asked him, are you going to debate your primary opponents? He said no. But then he also said he looked forward to debating Senator Warnock. So he has said on tape, at least with me, and as he's repeated with other organizations, that he intends on debating Senator Warnock. Later in this program, we're going to talk about all the money that has been flowing into Georgia. Obviously, we know that Georgia, obviously now a key battleground state as we head to November. But in terms of money, too, I want to talk about money coming to the state. There's this second installment of about $4.8 billion in federal funding that uh, was related to COVID. Do we know what Governor Kemp plans to allocate this towards? So, the best thing, first of all, what the governor said when he was asked about it this weekend is he's going to reach out to legislative leaders and budget officials. But let's look at what he has been doing. So he laid out these legislative committees that looked at water and sewer projects, rural mm-hmm. broadband, economic development. That's a lot of the direction that uh, Governor Kemp and Republican legislative leaders have been going. The, the thinking generally is go spend it on one-time projects things not things that are going to need money long term but but you know a road project or Mm -hmm. a water and sewer project or a rural broadband project something that doesn't need you know another year of funding and another year of funding so i think that's the direction you're going to see of course the governor's going to have a lot of options uh with that money and And, he can decide to do whatever he feels necessary for you know, for the state, correct? It doesn't with, have to go through any legislative approval or anything. It's whatever with he the wants. two point yeah, with this two point four billion, no. There are strings attached from what the federal government says, because this is coming from the feds, but they've been but the federal government's been very liberal in allowing now it says don't use it for tax cuts, for example, but of course there are ways around that. And let me mention another big chunk of money that that is headed towards lawmakers and the governor state revenues mm-hmm. are running way ahead yeah 33 know, in billion of, in taxes in the year ending uh, june 30 and wow. that it, just to give you a little uh, a perspective the state budget is 30 billion dollars they brought in 30 
three billion dollars. Mm -hmm. And then when you add in other funds, you could be looking at five billion dollars for the state to be able to spend when the budget year comes up next year. Now, and what well, we've and, been and hearing, though, some, Kemp mm -hmm. and his Democratic candidate, Stacey Abrams, had a little different take of what they would do with that money, though. Exactly. So after the after my little situation uh uh, in Gainesville, actually, in a situation you were told to go home, got kicked out from the barbecue situation. <laughs> I got kicked out of the. So I actually made the drive from Gainesville down to Jonesboro on that rainy Saturday uh, to a Stacey Abrams campaign event, um, and and she did her normal stump speech. But one of the things she added was she would do a one billion dollar tax rebate um, with, with with some of that money. Um, very similar to the $1 billion tax rebate that's being done right now that was proposed by Governor Kemp and then passed by the legislatures. That was one of the things. She also talked about raising teacher salaries even more and, of course, her, kind of one of her centerpieces, expanding Medicaid mm -hmm. as things that could be done with that tranche of money that's coming, both from the federal government in Washington, but also the increasing tax revenues that are coming in income-wise and from corporate uh, corporations in Georgia. And Governor Kemp, his plans, does it still along, along the lines of what he would do with the with the surplus? I mean, what is he talking about doing with this thing specifically? Has he said? So again, what he said, at least just to go with this weekend, what, what his campaign said uh, on Twitter was he's going to reach out to legislative leaders and, and, budget and budget writers. But I think, again, that's why I look back at what they did with the first you know, blast of money. You saw some of it come back as a tax rebate and a lot of one-time expense. I also had a conversation with Terry England on Friday, mm -hmm. and, and some of our audience may have heard that interview on Friday. He's the budget chairman uh, in the state house. And, and, and one of the things he talked about is they should possibly look at raising state employee salaries even more mm -hmm. to get them competitive with the private sector. Because as Chairman England pointed out, Every time you lose a state employee, it costs you more money because you've got to retrain the next employee and bring in and you, you'd be better off raising the salaries of current state employees. And I'm thinking back, Raul, to conversations I've had with folks in terms of social workers. Mm -hmm. Georgia social workers are, are underpaid compared to neighboring states. Also, you, you heard from the Ag Commissioner talking about the fact that they need everyone from meat inspectors and meat inspectors to everything else. So these are folks that talked about what they needed during the budget hearing. So Governor Kemp, if he remembers those, and I'm sure he does, those departments are probably saying, OK, hey, you know, what about us? Let's make sure our folks get these raises, too. We know about the educators, which they desperately needed that as well. But in yeah. those in agriculture especially, and then in Georgia's Department of Family Services and Social Workers, two other departments that we greatly know that workers are needed. And let me mention one other, the Department of Corrections and mm -hmm. Juvenile Justice, which have the highest turnover in the state of Georgia. Some years, they're, they're approaching 90% turnover. So they're, they're another state agency that really, really needs, needs that increase. The other thing that, that Terry England mentioned Again, kind of back to this idea of one-time expenses, moving up road projects mm -hmm. or rural broadband. So kind of the thinking, well, kind of from from further back, you're, you're seeing this thinking of, of from the Republican. And again, this is very generalistic, mm -hmm. what I'm about to say. This idea of either sending money back to taxpayers or using it for one-time capital expenses, whereas Stacey Abrams and Democrats are looking more at this idea of whether it's expanding Medicaid, something that would happen year after year, um, or expanding more salaries. So that's the kind of, again, that's very general, but kind of what you're seeing. But we're also still in this pandemic, and there are also still a lot of COVID-related sectors that have been hit hard. We know about the hospitality and restaurant industry as well. And look, numbers are going up in terms of new cases. So perhaps, who knows, maybe another campaign or maybe a push to get folks to get tested or get vaccinated. Perhaps that's not a top of mind for folks, but we still are in this pandemic. Raul, before we let you go, we know that sometime soon, a federal appeals court's decision on the constitutionality of that Georgia law banning abortions after six weeks. Are you hearing anything from state lawmakers, especially now since we know the Supreme Court has overturned Roe versus Wade? 
Will it just depend on whatever this ruling is? Let me start real quick with what's going on in the courts. So the state of Georgia and the organizations that are suing over House Bill 481, Mm -hmm. they have been asked to file briefs with the U.S. Court of Appeals, the 11th Circuit based here in Atlanta, to file briefs by this Friday. It's going to be really interesting Mm -hmm. to read those briefs. But the underlying question is, now that Roe and Casey have been overturned by the U.S. Supreme Court, what should that mean for Georgia's law that is actually on hold, the one you mentioned, that would effectively ban abortions after six weeks in most cases. As for what lawmakers, lawmakers, especially on the Republican side, have been really mum. The, mm-hmm. the, the Kind of the thinking is, you know, run on heartbeat, which is wh- what the bill's been called. Mm-hmm. That's kind of the, the language I'm hearing. Just focus on running instead of running on what else should be done, whether you do away with the exceptions for rape and incest or health of the mother, or do you go from six weeks to to no weeks, a Mm -hmm. complete ban? I'm not hearing Republican lawmakers, you know, a handful have mentioned it, but most are, you know, let's run on House Bill 41 um, when it passes and when it's implemented. So that's kind of what I'm hearing. Of course, Democrats are, are, are running that, you know, this is, you know, this is a blast against abortion rights in the state of Georgia. Mm. WAB politics reporter Raul Bali, thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Always love coming on, Rose. And if I have a barbecue, you are more than welcome to join. <laughs> you and everybody else in Atlanta, just come on through. I'll be there. All right. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. And from WABE in Atlanta, this is Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. These next questions are for any of you listeners who work in the real estate or property management fields or some related sector. First question, are home prices on the decline due to fears about a recession? Hmm. Are buyers putting their quest for home ownership on hold due to rising interest rates? What does this mean for renters? And, of course, the question I've been asking since 2015 Where's affordable housing in this region? All good questions, I believe. Well, in East Point, nearly 20 years after it closed, a former public housing high rise is being renovated to meet what else affordable housing needs. Let's get the scoop. Joining me now is the executive director of the East Point Housing Authority, Michael Spann. Welcome. Good afternoon. Thank you for having me, Rose. Let's begin here. Overall, is housing affordability in East Point, how would you put it at a crisis level or not yet or concern? Well, I'd say we're not at crisis level yet, but we're approaching it. That's for sure. Um, there are some, I'd say probably 60% of the houses, current housing stock in East Point is rental houses. Uh, about 40, 45% are homeowners. And um, so that, that, uh, that means the, uh, the landlords have the, they have the upper hand. And with this housing market, they are taking advantage of that. What have you noticed over the last few years? I mean, because we know that East Point has been growing. It's become a hotbed for film and TV production and things of that nature. And I've, I've had friends say, look, I'm going out to East Point to find something. And they come back and say, Rose couldn't find anything. Maybe that's good news for you all because obviously you, you're attracting more people. But at the same time, you know, are you, are you seeing that folks who have been there, who've lived there, maybe legacy residents and maybe the generations after, they're having a hard time finding or, or maintaining to stay in their homes. Right, right. And one of the things that the Housing Authority, our, our charter, our personal mission is to try to continue to create affordable housing in the community. Um, as as the property values go up, there are those legacy families, as you mentioned, that are struggling with the tax, the tax increases. Mm-hmm. And so one of our hopefully goals is to try to provide, uh, if they're looking to downsize, but they want to stay in the area. Mm-hmm. Uh, the housing authority may have units, housing units that might be suitable for these homes. Well, let me ask you this. How many properties or units do you all operate? 
the housing authority currently has 200 public housing units. Uh, we are managing 750 housing choice vouchers. Uh, we own or co-develop some 300 senior units in the city of East Point. Uh, and we just recently opened up 180 units of senior housing. All told, we currently are managing about 1,250 units. Uh, a year from now, we anticipate that number to grow another 250. Uh, I remember here in Atlanta, because I covered this, when there was a, a backlog of a waiting list for voucher programs. You all have that same issue out there in East Point? We do, and it's not unique to East Point. Every housing authority, every city has waiting lists that um, are overly crowded. We've got some 3,000 families, 3,000 families on our waiting list between our public housing and our housing choice voucher waiting list. You can approach any housing authority and ask them. Mm -hmm. uh, they probably have similar numbers. And Rose, to be honest, if we were to open up our waiting list, we could probably get 10,000 more families. So unfortunately- What does that say to you? What does that say to you? That there's, a, there's an overwhelming pent up demand for affordable housing. Uh, families are looking to get out of situations where a significant portion of their income is being designated for 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 rent. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, when you when you start approaching 35, 40, 50 percent of your rent uh, coming from your you know your income going to rent, that means there's other things you can't do, like provide healthy food for your families or provide health care. They have to make choices. Am I going to eat good or am I going to go to the doctor? I'm going to pay the rent. Do you all? have programs do you know they may not be necessarily with the housing authority but connect either to the city or even up in hud up in washington where folks are able to try to transition into home ownership yes we do yes we do and i'm happy to report that your friend our mayor dina holiday ingram who i know you've had on your program a couple of times she's a friend of the housing authority as is the city of east point and the city council um we do uh we tried and mayor ingram's been helpful in helping us get through some roadblocks in terms of getting programs and developments and funding pushed through. Uh, we, we partner with a number of agencies throughout the city and the county of uh, here in Fulton County, uh, in addition to the city, to provide services to our families that will hopefully help them move to self-sufficiency. Mm -hmm. Ideally, public housing, subsidized housing, it's a safety net and it's designed to get families in help them get stable, and then to move out so we can help the next family. That's what it's designed for. But you and I both know there is this perception of what people think in terms of, well, who's receiving public housing assistance and and who these folks are. And I think, based on the reporting I've done, perhaps not enough is said about what the program is designed for. Yeah, it's, it's not just, it's designed not just for housing, but it's also designed for uh, again, self-sufficiency, teaching our program participants new skills. We partner, again, with a number of agencies, including um, I, we have a long-term, for example, we have a long-term relationship with an agency, Kenai Community Development Consortium. They've been providing after-school mentoring, academic enrichment, parenting skills, GED classes for our, for our residents, again, with the idea that it's designed to move on. HUD has a program, it's a family self-sufficiency program, whereby they will encourage households to gain employment, mm -hmm. grow in their employment, and as you increase your income, uh, part of that income increase is set aside in an escrow, whereby, you know, after so many goals are achieved, they will be able to take those escrows and take advantage of our homeownership program. You mm -hmm. asked about that. We do have a homeownership program that will allow them, for example, if you're a voucher holder, you'll, you're able to use your voucher to help transition to um, homeownership. Meanwhile, you all are rehabbing the farmers at the Nelms house. Is that correct? Correct. So That's now correct. for people who may not be familiar, I want to give a bit of a history behind this site. This closed in about 2004 and had been That's vacant. Correct. So it was just sitting there. Yes, it was. Uh, there were multiple attempts to either redevelop the site, sell the site, just depending on the market and depending on the housing authorities administration. But um there's always been a desire to renovate the building. Mm -hmm. And so um, we were fortunate last year to partner with the Vecino Group, uh, and they are working with us to renovate the building. There had been some th talk and thought about possibly dem demolishing the building, but with construction costs being what they are, mm -hmm. that particular building was primarily, the frame was such to where it was concrete and steel. 
And so it made more sense for us to renovate. So yes, we're looking and we're excited about the fact that the tallest building in East Point is now going to be an, a landmark. The Aya Tower is the new uh, brand for it, and it means uh, strong tower. And you all have been talking about this for a few years now, but now you're actually going to begin. First of all, I'm, I'm, I'm assuming there is an assessment that has to go in here. And you know as well as I know, too, also, some of those buildings, and coming, I'm coming from St. Louis, and I know about the public housing there, and have family members that lived in them, and there was concerns about lead and asbestos and all other kinds of stuff in there, toxins. You all have to go in and have you done an assessment of that? We've done two assessments. We've done two uh, studies, environmental studies, and uh, only one was required, but because of the age of the building, we went ahead and did a second one. Mm -hmm. Uh, The the building is being completely gut rehab. We're taking it down to the metal and and the concrete. Okay. So everything besides the metal and the concrete will be brand new. Um, uh, not, not only have we done the environmentals for the uh, the building, but we've also done it in the uh, in the area um, adjacent to the buildings, just to make sure. So, yes, we've we've gone above and beyond. Well, that's good to hear. How many units are y'all planning? Then you think you can get out of? Then these are just uh, one bedrooms, two bedrooms, one and two bedrooms, uh, mostly one bedrooms. We're anticipating eighty eight new units, and it's multifamily, so it's not just limited to seniors or or disabled. It's um, you know, those who qualify will be eligible to move into the new, the new development. This is a nine-story high-rise. You right. know, when you talk about higher-density housing projects that are coming to downtown East Point, do you see sort of this city's at the core that this is a priority for the coming years? You know, well, I was told by uh, an architect about five years ago when we were initially considering other developments, the only way that you can get economic development businesses to come is you have to have rooftops. Mm-hmm. So we're putting the rooftops in, we're putting the rooftops in, we're doing our part, we figure the businesses will follow. If we're adding, you know, over the next several years, you know, we will have added some 500 units. There are other developers that are bringing housing to the city of East Point. The businesses have to come. You think this is part, this this can be part of the plan. Well, let's then talk about the aesthetics because I've, I've done a story here where the Atlanta Housing Authority rehabbed a, a building here in our in our downtown area for senior housing and those uh, with disabilities. And it looks like some high tech building. It fits right in with the, quote, decor of Midtown, downtown Atlanta. Are you all playing that same thing? Because, listen, in the past, we all know that that's a housing project. Look how it looks. You can tell by looking at it. And they all had this same, whether it was St. Louis or, or Atlanta or Chicago, New York, they had that same look, you know? Yes. Well, uh, public housing, the face of public housing is being transformed. Mm-hmm. You can drive around Atlanta. You can drive around parts of East Point. We've got several new developments that were opened up within the last couple of years. You drive by, you wouldn't know it was formerly public housing. You would know that's even affordable housing even now. Yes, the look and feel is completely different. I want to live there. I'd want my family to live. There. We want everybody to drive by and say, "Hey, I want to live there." Mm-hmm. So it's 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 different. It's different, and that that's that's what we're being encouraged to do by HUD. Uh, it's not just. Let me back up. We're also being encouraged to develop communities that are mixed income, mm-hmm. multi multi use, uh, so we can attract a large swath of persons and families. When do you all anticipate that this could be completed? So you can have your fancy ribbon cutting with your big golden scissors there and cutting we'll that ribbon. You. We'll call you. But we anticipate <laughs> probably summer of uh, this time next year, we anticipate you really? know, fall 23. Yeah. Yeah. They're making good, good progress. And uh, we're excited about that. Yes. For those that are listening that are saying, well, then are you telling me that although it's um, just maybe a, you said 100 units, maybe? 88 units at that development. We have another development where we're um, opening up another 166 units on on Stanton Road in East Point. So it, so it's it may not it. solve your entire problem, but it definitely gives you some. I mean, it gives some options for now. That's correct. That is absolutely correct. And we 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 we, we can't touch everyone, but we can we can we can touch a good number. What's next for you all in terms of the East Point Housing Authority? Well, our goal is to continue to be the voice of affordable and workforce housing. Uh, We want to be an advocate at the state level whereby we can ask them to continue to, uh, you know, you were talking just a minute ago with about the surplus budget in Georgia. Mm -hmm. So we've all been eyeing that. Uh, The Department of Community Affairs manages the allocation of funding for tax credit. And so we're hoping that there will be a larger 
pool of resources in the tax credit pool and that there would be some set-asides for housing authorities so we wouldn't have to compete with uh, private developers, for-profit developers. On the federal level, oh, go ahead. No, good, good finish. On the federal level, we're hoping that they will allocate uh, more funds for rental assistance. Mm-hmm. There's a there's a growing gap between again the income and the rent, the rent structures, and uh, so we're we're asking and we're advocating and lobbying at the um, state, federal level and the state level that there would be monies for public housing, rental assistance, and uh, some some funds that would be set aside primarily and and even utility assistance, so that our families aren't struggling to uh, to house their to house their How's their families? And how much are you all going to spend on this renovation for these affordable new new affordable homes? For the Aya Tower, mm-hmm. uh, that budget's just about eighteen. I believe it's twenty twenty million dollars. And for the uh, Hillcrest redevelopment, that one's right also around twenty twenty four million dollars. And when will the application process open up, or do you already would you try to bring folks in who've been on a waiting list? Uh, uh, both. We will typically target some of our, for the senior units, we'll, we'll go out and we will explore our, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll target them first. And uh, we anticipate the waiting list for both developments to be open probably sometime in uh, late summer of 2023. And uh, we, and, and then for the, uh, for the other waiting lists, uh, we typically have, those are designated typically for our public housing and mm-hmm. for um, our Section 8 program. So those are a little different. Director Spann, as we wrap up, and I've asked this question to so many people, and I ask you, when we have all these conversations, and goodness, I've had so many of them, about housing yeah. affordability and, and affordable housing in this region, through your mind, through your viewpoint, what's missing or what isn't being talked about enough? If there's this, quote, holistic, collaborative approach. I, I believe what's probably missing is partnering with outside agencies mm-hmm. so we can collaborate let's let's come bring the minds together and what can we do to address these issues it's not there you can you can pour money into them and that's certainly going to help um, but I think it's making sure that we we can try to eliminate the not in my backyard mentality not everybody wants affordable housing in their community mm-hmm. and so we have to overcome that paradigm well have you all had to deal with that most definitely. But what we try to do is we before we even start a development, we go into the community and we we attend uh, resident associations, homeowners, uh, neighborhood uh, association meetings. And we, we engage the community and we, we try to give them a heads up of what we'd like to do. Is it in line with the long term uh, development plan for the city? And we found that if we engage them and we let them know we can dispel the, the myths of, you know, it's not going to be your traditional public housing. These are it's the new of. There's a new public housing in town, mm-hmm. and uh, like you mentioned, those buildings. Uh, there, are some of these buildings in some of these cities. They're the most attractive buildings in the cities now. All brick, beautiful landscape. You know, I mean, just needs a little bit of love and touch up. What you're saying? That's right. That's right. Michael That's Spann right. is the executive director of the East Point Housing Authority. Good conversation. Thank you so much for taking the time. Yes, invite us out next year, right? That's right. And I want to be at the, at that barbecue also. So. <laughs> Everybody's coming around barbecue. I appreciate it. Thank you. All right. Thank you, Rose. All right. Bye-bye. And Closer Look continues from WABE in Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. They're everywhere, as to be expected. Campaign ads. Supply chain crisis. You've heard enough about it. But what if I told you shipping container companies have been making record profits while prices have been skyrocketing on you? That's why I'm pushing to hold them accountable. I'm a conservative, not because someone told me to be. I'm a conservative because I believe in smaller government, a strong military, and making sure all people have the opportunity to pursue their dreams. They want to give your money to millionaires. I want to expand Medicaid to invest in hardworking Georgians, create 64,000 good-paying jobs across the state, add 20,000 paid apprenticeships. Economists say it will keep our hospitals open and lower costs for everyone without raising taxes. Georgia leads the nation because Brian Kemp is governor. He reopened Georgia first, brought thousands of jobs, and Kemp's cut taxes to help families deal with Biden's inflation. Brian Kemp's kept Georgia the best place to live. Now... Considering all of that, add in all the money that's pouring into Georgia elections, 
But here's a question. How much and who's it coming from and why? So let's follow the money trail. Atlanta-based campaign strategist, demographer, and political analyst Fred Hicks joins us once again. Fred, welcome. Thank you, Rose. Glad to be here. Hope you had a great weekend. I did. Did absolutely nothing, which is what I do best. I want to begin <laughs> by I want to begin by going back to last year when the reports revealed that the 2022 midterms were going to reach 7.8 billion. Now that was from the Global Data Insights and consulting firm Cantor. Will that figure go beyond that come by November? Are we still looking at 7.8 billion? Yeah, you know, the interesting thing about the report, Rose, is that it is um, it was a projection for the entire country, for the entire midterms, not just here in Georgia. Mm-hmm. So it is a little bit difficult to predict, but $7.8 billion, um, you know, could, could, could feel about right, uh, depending on how things go. Now, with the recent decision around Roe v. Wade, I think that that makes 7.8 much more realistic because reproductive health is now a major issue. And for left-leaning organizations, that tends to be the cause around which most people make their donations. So I think you can see a lot of soft money. Uh, and again, for the listeners, soft money is money that is spent on campaigns that does not go into a campaign, a candidate's account directly. So I think with issues like that, of course, with criminal justice reform still being on the ballot um, and then other other potential hot button issues that could feel about right. But, you know, seven point eight billion is going to really be determined by uh, how likely it is one party is going to win an area or, or mm-hmm. not. So you know. it was also predicted that broadcast TV would, quote, lead the pack advertising in terms across digital channels. And that will continue to show some significant growth. But earlier, too, I was reading an article about the just the power of streaming platforms and how so much money is going to that because people don't necessarily just sit down and watch the traditional four networks anymore. You know, ABC, NBC, CBS and Fox or PBS. So digital will be a huge, huge place where a lot of money is going. Absolutely. We started really seeing the rise of digital in 2018. Uh, well, the start of digital in 2018, and it became uh, very prominent in the 2020 election cycle, really starting in 2019, with Republicans investing, or at least it felt like Republicans invested a lot more than Democrats in that. Um, now, between 2020 and 2022, we see that sector continuing to grow. And so when we talk about digital, we're talking about the ads that appear on your websites. Mm-hmm. We're talking about the ads that appear on Facebook, Instagram. And then we're also talking about something, you know, our end report talks about OTT. Mm-hmm. So that's the, if you're watching a show like on Hulu or on, um, you know, one of the other streaming, Amazon Prime or something like that, if an ad, ad comes on there. So digital is, is, is definitely a growth market. But listen, the old staples are, are going to continue leading the pack. That's TV and, and that's direct mail direct and mail. radio. Absolutely. Yep, those three, uh, they're expensive, um, and they still dominate the the market. Before we tackle Georgia's races here, I want to look at how both major political parties and their super PACs are targeting their efforts. Now, we know that control of the Senate is key. And I remember that in the first three months of this year, there were six races everyone was focusing on. We're talking about Georgia, obviously, Pennsylvania, Ohio, Arizona, Florida, and Wisconsin. Those are the top six races that would have will be considered the highest spending campaigns by both parties. Yeah, absolutely. And when we talk about that, we're talking about those states because that uh, those states will determine the direction of the Senate. Now, most people still believe that the House is, uh, is going to flip over to Republican control this year, particularly after the recent court rulings around, around maps and redistricting, right? So we're talking about control of the Senate. And so... Really, you have those five, six states that are that are out there because Wisconsin, you have um, the race against Ron Johnson, who was involved with January 6th, mm-hmm. some of the other places. But, you know, you have two senators who are short termers, so to speak, and Mark Kelly out in Arizona and Raphael Warnock here in Georgia that are really, really, really important. And it's important for both both parties, right? Because right now the Senate is 50-50 with the tie-breaking vote going to the Democrats because of Vice President Harris. Mm-hmm. But many uh, progressive groups feel that it's really 50-48 because of Cinema and, um, and, and Joe Manchin. Mm-hmm. So it's very, very important 
for Democrats to hold the 50 that they have and then try to grow that. And, you know, I see a lot of chatter on social media saying that, ah, oh, you know, if I'm a Republican, oh, you know, they're not conservative enough. If I'm a Democrat, oh, they're not progressive enough. But the reality is that the Senate is extremely important. It really kind of outpunches its weight in terms of the division of power mm-hmm. in our government. And whichever side you're on, you need to be very active in this election to try to grow that to about 51 to 52, really, to have a safe margin. Well, and here we know that last week, I believe Friday was a deadline. So folks had to say, look, here's where the money's coming from. You have been taking a deep dive into all of this. What stood out for you? Absolutely. So, you know, the some headlines broke over the weekend and they're very, very noteworthy. One being that Stacey Abrams has now eclipsed Brian Kemp in terms of total fundraising. Mm-hmm. She's at about a million dollars more and about 30.5 to his 29.5. And that's that's uh, that's very interesting because he's the incumbent and he's a Republican and traditionally Republicans have outraged Democrats uh, in this rep- in this period that ended on June 30th. And that's what we're talking about right now. The the. Um, the period from April 30th mm-hmm. to June 30th, well, really May 1st to June 30th, she raised him about 10 million to 7 million, close, roughly. And so that's really interesting to see that she is continuing to, continuing what she, the trend that she started in 2018. And in all the reports, the Kemp, the Kemp team um, acknowledged and expected that she would outraise him. Their goal is just to stay close. Now, well, yeah, I was going to say, because one would argue, look, when you're talking about nearly $30 million per candidate here, is a million dollars really that big? Because that could swing by the time we, we take another look at I mean, it could swing within two, three weeks here. Oh, absolutely. And you got to think about this, right? So Stacey was in, joined the race uh, December 1st or so. So she's raising a little bit under $5 million a month. Whereas the governor who had a contested primary in his direct campaign account is it has a lower per month run. Now, I expect that that's going to change for Governor Kemp because now that the primary is clear and and also that Stacey Abrams is racist, I think that's going to trigger a lot more support for him financially. Um, and he can use that to raise more money. And so I think we'll, we'll see that. The other interesting thing to me is I did a little analysis and I, I, I said, okay, uh, up and down the line mm-hmm. uh, for all the statewide races, except for public service commission. The only reason I excluded that is there's a there's a court case uh, mm-hmm. trying to determine whether or not, you know, what's what's going to happen with that. So I left that out. But if we look at governor, secretary of state, lieutenant governor, state school superintendent, insurance commissioner, um, you know, overall, it's, it's, it's a very interesting picture in that the Republicans have outraised the Democrats. Um and but but the gap is starting to shrink. So in key seats such as governor, um, Stacey Abrams has outraised Brian Kemp, um, and Sec- Secretary of State's race B. Wynn has outraised Brad Raffensperger. Uh, she had about two point one million. He had about one point nine. And for your listeners, our listeners, it's important to understand that these numbers include loans. Mm-hmm. So Secretary of State Raffensperger loaned himself about eight hundred thousand of that one point or nine two million dollars. Um, and then, of course, with the, the superintendent of schools, we're not talking about a large amount of money, but Alicia Thomas Searcy outraised uh, the uh, the incumbent Richard Wood. But then in the lieutenant governor's race, you have Burt Jones, who through $2 million loans and all of mm-hmm. that raised a little bit more than 10.5 to Charlie Bailey's 1.4. So overall, in the aggregate, we're really talking about a couple of things here. Number one, the governor's race. We love to talk about money on our show here, right? This your yep. show and when we're on is that in the governor's race, you know, we're easily headed for $100 million in hard money. We're not talking about the leadership pack. We're not talking about the super PACs and all the other things there. We're talking about 100, maybe even 125 to $150 million in hard campaign money that's going to be spent on the governor's race alone. When but you there, the, go ahead, finish. Yeah. Well, when you flip and you look at the Senate race, for example, where Senator Warnock's raised about $68 million, Herschel Walker, of the last disclosure, about $16 million. Mm-hmm. That's also in hard money going to eclipse 100 probably $150 million mark. So just in those top two races alone, you're talking about $300 million uh, in hard campaign money. And then you can expect the soft money, the PACs and other th- um, independent committees to at least match that. So just in those two races alone... I would say you're talking about 600 million, and then when you get into the high-profile things like attorney general, where mm-hmm. again, this is where whether or not Georgia will enforce um, 
penalties for people exercising reproductive rights. So in that race between Chris Carr and Jen Jordan, mm -hmm. and also the Secretary of State's race, I think those will also raise a lot of money. And and, and you in those races, you'll probably see more outside money spent than actual, I mean, outside being soft money than you do in hard money. So these are the ways that we get to that billion-dollar number that's, that you're not talking and about And that's what I want to talk about, too, because are you paying attention to where this money is coming from? And you look at Stacey Abrams' campaign, and there was reports made that so much is coming outside of Georgia, where you look at uh, Brian Kemp's campaign and his top contributors. One is D, D2C Holdings, which is an LLC that I believe is based in Ohio, according to our mm -hmm. records. Does that, what does that say to you? Well, that shows that Georgia, even though it's a southern state, is really it has national implications. And we saw that in 2020 when Joe Biden carried Georgia, contrary to the Stop the Steelers, right? And then when Georgia flipped in terms of the Senate with two taking both Senate seats. And so now if we're talking again about control of the Senate and setting the stage for 24, Georgia is really Georgia, Arizona. Um, are, are, are tier one, mm -hmm. uh, what we call tier one states. And, and I say tier one because in both parties, uh, you have, you organize, you stratify mm -hmm. the states and those states get additional money from like, uh, in the case of uh, both parties have a govern governor's association. So you have the RGA and you have the DGA. And so the tier one states, when you have a competitive race, those, those states get the most amount of money. And so I think this is just really the, the amount of outside money for both Republicans and Democrats. So with that, I mean the governor's race, the mm -hmm. Senate race, also, again, Secretary of State's race, which is really high profile because of the Stop the Steal movement. Mm -hmm. um, all of these people, Brad Raffensperger hasn't had a lot of out-of-state money, but I think we're going to see more. Um, and as we get, as the, as the map starts to constrict and fewer and fewer places become competitive as we get closer to November, I think Georgia will continue to be one of those places. And when that happens, you're going to see even more money from the outside because people are looking for wins. And I think I think uh, by the end of this, we could see Georgia actually have more outside money by a significant margin than m contributions from inside the state being spent on the elections in Georgia. Who would have thought just <laughs> really five years ago we'd be talking – consistently about Georgia being a battleground state. Well, Fred, let's talk then about strategy, because do you bring in your, quote, heavy hitters? And who are the heavy hitters? Let's start with the Democrats here. Uh, you know, uh, President Biden has well, issues with the Democrats, and a lot of folks are saying he may not be that that person, that peg to to get folks excited for the Democrats. Of course, you've always got your, your other card there, which is President Barack Obama, who enjoys a, a much higher popularity, Brady, so, so to speak. Does Oprah come times, back here? I mean, you know. <laughs> well, you know, in tough times, um, in tough times being when you're not sure how the election is going to go, you bring out your tried and true. So on the Democratic side, you know, Michelle Obama has the highest, the former first lady, has the highest favorables of any really, quote unquote, politician, even though she's, you know, she wasn't an elected official. So I think you'll see the Obamas, both of them, uh, coming down here, at least on behalf of Senator Warnock and Stacey Abrams. I think that you're also going to see very prominent Hollywood figures uh, coming out. So you got to remember, um, there are a lot of people who are invested in this, again, because of the Roe decision, because of the belief that Roe is the first domino and next up will be the LGBT rights. Mm -hmm. uh, remember uh, Justice Thomas's concurrence where he concurring opinion to the role where he basically questioned whether or not a gay marriage, same-sex marriage should be permissible. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. you have a lot of folks who are going to be investing in Georgia because they are vested in what happens in the state. Here's one thing that I think that the Democrats have to really be concerned about, and and we're debuting, debuting this term for, for the closer look listeners. All right, let's get ready. Dun, 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 dun. I think Democrats have to be leery of trickle-down politics. So we know that trickle-down economics, the mm -hmm. Reaganomics says that you invest in the top 1%, 5%, and if you give them all the benefits and all the resources, that means that everyone else will do well, and that really hasn't worked. Well, the Democratic Party, they have to be really careful to avoid what I'm calling trickle-down politics, that is investing in Georgia and Raphael Warnock and Stacey Abrams only, and thinking that everything else is going to be okay. Thinking that people will just will vote down ballot and pick Democrat, Democrat, Democrat. 
Absolutely. And that, that is, I think that is a huge mistake. I think you have to look at races like the Ag Commissioner. If PSC stays on the on, on the ballot, Public Service Commissioner, they'll look at that. Schools, mm-hmm. I think, is a huge one, given that we know that school safety is a major issue. I want to uh, give, I want to give some equal time. Like but I, I hate to interrupt you, Fred, because I want to give some equal time then to the, the Republicans then in terms of Absolutely. who are they looking at to from the outside now to come to Georgia? Yeah. So I think on the Republican side, they, they, they're playing with house money a little bit. And that the composite uh, polling has Brian Kemp sitting at about 52 percent um, and about a five, six point gap over Stacey Abrams. So his job and the job of the Republicans is, is primarily going to be, I think, number one, to hold their votes, hold their base. And then number two, to make sure they don't really inflame or give less than faithful Democratic voters a reason to come out to vote. And I think that's why. We saw the governor uh, resist calls from members of the legislature to have a special session mm-hmm. to institute even more draconian anti-reproductive health laws. And he's saying, "Listen, we're just gonna we're gonna put what was uh, we're gonna put into effect what was already passed, even though it only passed by one vote in the legislature." And he's really kind of starting to shy away from the more controversial things and make it make it about economics. So I'll tell you, while we could talk for a second about who they should bring in who Brian Kemp does not want to see in Georgia, and I don't think any Republican wants to see in Georgia, is Donald Trump. And that, to me, is the elephant in the room, the orange elephant in the room. How involved is he going to be in Georgia politics? Is he going to try to suppress votes? Is he going to put? Is he going to make it about himself or whatnot? So I, I think you won't see you won't see that. But uh, hopefully, for if you're in the Kemp campaign, you you won't have the uh, you won't have Donald Trump there. But beyond that, I think you'll want to see a lot of the 24 hopefuls. So I think you'll see Marco Rubio back again because the Hispanic, Latino, Latinx vote sure. is extremely important to both parties. So I think you'll see a lot of that. I think you'll also see some key figures from the AAPI community. So again, we always say this on the show that these races now are not won by large margins. They're run along the edges and so the margins and so inches, not feet. And so I think that... Um, the Hispanic and the and the and the AAPI Asian American Pacific Islander community uh, communities are very very important. All I right, think we're all Fred, I got to stop you years. there. We could go on and on. We'll have you back, buddy. I appreciate it. Atlanta-based I campaign. No, you don't. Atlanta-based <laughs> campaign strategist, demographer, and political analyst Fred Hicks. As always, thank you, Fred. We'll have you back. We'll talk more thank about you. this. Looking forward to it. Take care. All right. And that is it for this edition of Closer Look. Our producers are LaShawn Hudson, Janine Etter, and Daniel Razel. Our intern is Lennox Johnson. Our engineer is Kevin Rinker. And a reminder, you can revisit this wonderful conversation I just had with Fred tonight at 7 p.m., as well as online at wabe.org slash Closer Look. And, of course, in our podcast. So subscribe to Closer Look wherever you like. Make sure you stay tuned to 90.1 WABE Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Local, state, national politics. WABE and NPR have the coverage you need. I'm Jim Burris, host of WABE's All Things Considered. Whether it's on the air at 90.1, streaming online, or connecting through our mobile app, WABE keeps you on top of election 2024 in what's sure to be a pivotal year in politics. And for candidates and ballot information, visit our election hub at wabe.org election 2024.